0: Hello there, I'm T. Reddy, and welcome to Inside Intercom. Today, we're wrapping up the second season of Scale, our series dedicated to the strategies and frameworks that drive business growth. Over the series, we've heard from a slate of brilliant leaders and thinkers from the likes of Google, Yelp and Udemy. These are individuals who have all successfully propelled their company to a new stage of growth despite the odds. So far, we've learned that there's no magic formula to scale, but our great guests have shared the growth levers they've found, the strategies they've implemented, and plenty of actionable advice that they have for others looking to expand their business in just the same way. This week, Alec Ortiz, VP of Marketing at Trade.io, speaks with our Senior Director of Demand Generation, Brian Coatlear, about why we shouldn't fear automation in the workplace. Instead, we should embrace it as a means to unlocking time in our day-to-day and as a tool that allows businesses to focus on strategy, creativity and execution. This was a really insightful conversation that we're delighted to share with you to round off this series of Scale. So let's head over to the studio and hear from Brian and Alex.
1: Hi, Alex. Uh, welcome to the podcast today. We're delighted to have you on the show. So you're the VP of Marketing at Trey. Can you tell us a little about yourself and what brought you here into the studio for the day? Absolutely. Well, good to be with you, Brian. I love automation
2: as a, as a concept. I think we've all worked at companies that have software that automates certain parts of our work. But I'm I'm very excited to share with you some ideas that we have collected from other smart marketers and uh, really just have a conversation of where we think marketing's going, where we think automation's going. So thanks for the invite.
1: Yeah, that would be great. I'm really excited to learn about it, too. It's a topic I'm not an expert in, but very excited about. I guess maybe, if you don't mind, maybe could you give us like 30 seconds on your career journey just so folks have a sense of, of kind of how you got into this area?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, gosh, now 20 years in... Software of many different stripes, uh, mostly B two B software companies like Salesforce, Host Analytics, Quantic Mind, Linkshare, and a little bit of venture capital in there as well. So my career journey didn't start in marketing. I was a mechanical engineer by undergrad training, and just like many other people, you know, life is a series of doors that open in front of you, and I chose to walk through the the door that said marketing. And I'm sure glad I did because. I think there's no better time to be a marketer than today. You get to, you know, think about technology. You get to think about people. You get to think about buyer psychology. So if you're interested in the kind of a wide swath of topics, I mean, marketing is just a treasure trove of disciplines and ideas all all mashed together.
1: Great. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and and I agree. It's uh, every great marketer I know, you know. That's not the path they set out on uh, when they graduated from whatever educational institution, but they're so grateful for how they ended up there. So that, that, I think that's a really common story. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about Trey itself and about some of the things the company's focused on and and, and where it's going uh, from here? Absolutely. So Trey.io is a general
2: automation platform designed for what we call citizen automators. And the big idea behind Trey is taking what used to be an old capability called integration that used to be sold exclusively to CIOs at big companies by companies like, like MuleSoft, but to go and democratize those capabilities to marketing ops, to sales ops, to line of business folks like us who have adopted SaaS tools, uh, you know, all over the, the enterprise. And, and that's a big shift, right? And we've, you know, we've all been using software for a while, but to, to the point where, you know, the question becomes, well, how do you get your software to work together? And Trey really there to help line of business and even devs and IT orchestrate workflow processes across their enterprise.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: As a person who buys software, like I agree, I agree. I never thought I would be this deeply involved with acquiring and stitching together all the different technology we need just to to do relatively simple things, it seems. Um, And I agree, products like Trey are are invaluable for kind of like hooking together almost like Legos, actually to your mechanical engineering front, right? It's very similar to probably your, your original training. Yeah. I guess on that front, you know, we both, you sell a product that helps stitch us all together. We both buy technology. Could you tell us a little bit about what you see as like a good, healthy marketing stack it's a concept i know marketers are always you know comparing notes yeah. could you maybe tell us a little bit how, how you're thinking about that today yeah absolutely
2: gosh i mean how have this if you if you have, take a long view on it the stack is really different now than it used to be right even at my time at salesforce right like you had a center of gravity it was usually salesforce marketing automation tool and ga google analytics or a analytics tool there were other tools for sure but uh if you think about today 20 you know here we are in year 2020 There are so many ways to engage with people. I mean, web chat is a great way to engage, phone, SMS. There's so many channels, and each channel requires technology to manage it effectively if you're a marketer. So I don't know if there's any one right answer on what's the ultimate stack. But what I will share is that we've, you know, at Trey, we're lucky enough to work with very innovative companies. And what we've noticed is that there's actually this big shift happening in the marketplace, that I don't know is well understood. Um, so, what I call it, I call it the shift to the new stack. And our partners, mm-hmm. like Segment, recently came out with a, a great integrated campaign about, you know, CRM is not enough and the platform of independence. And what they're getting at, I think, is the fact that you know, if you if you go back in history to B2B, CRM was has been around for more than twenty years. And it's really good at capturing unstructured data, basically notes from salespeople and contacts. But all of that is you know, data that people are you know, typing on keyboards. Here we are in 2020 with much better data collection than we've ever had. You know, Companies like a Segment or any tag manager or you know, many other technologies that are good at just collecting a volume of behavior data. And there needs to be a new way to organize that behavior data that's largely click data and marry it together with the qualitative data that might be in your CRM or other tools. And so the reason that companies are shifting into new new stack is CRM wasn't designed to handle all the click data that's coming at them. Sure, they, they they have fields and they can store it, but it's really not the optimal place. And if you think about AWS, if you think about you know the rise of cloud data warehousing, that is a big technology change and a big game changer for a lot of companies. So we've seen companies who have basically re-centralized their data into cloud data warehouses, and that is the source of truth. It's a system of record. And they're marrying together both the, the unstructured data and the structured data to do really interesting marketing. And gosh, like, again, we get to talk to a lot of smart customers that are figuring out how to do things like, you know, personalized marketing at scale. Are um, the growth team over at DigitalOcean has really figured out how to do this. And, uh, you know, I won't share all the all, all the secret sauce there, but man, as marketers, we've been talking about personalized marketing for like, you know, a decade. And for the longest time, it felt like a great concept, but hard to execute because of all the technology orchestration that you need, all the creative um, burden to, to like personalize across many different segments. But I can now honestly say I've seen the light. I've seen customers really... Be able to, to pursue that strategy and do it well.
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. What you're saying really resonates with me quite a bit. I think in my last few roles doing this kind of growth work, we definitely found ourselves like just by necessity, the center of gravity of everything was Salesforce. I would often describe it as sort of like the neutral Switzerland of all of our technologies because it was the one thing I knew anything we bought would plug into. Yeah. Um, but you're right; it's not built for, uh, for for this new world and this new set of capabilities we're trying to do. And and I observe when I talk to peers. They're they're all struggling with how to, given their Salesforce centric setup, how to manage and execute with all this amazing new data and capabilities that they've got. Yeah. Do you have any advice for folks who are uh, have realized that or are about to realize that and are like making that transition uh, on how how to kind of navigate that? You know, my advice is start with your
2: you know your objectives and your process. Don't start with your technology. Right. Like technology serves an end, but you first have to think about your marketing strategy and what it is you have to think about what stage you are. you know clearly for us like to, to try to bite that off as a you know a couple of years ago as a very early stage company it would have been very difficult. We just didn't have the skill set in the company to to replatform to a cloud data warehouse. but now you know we have a growth engineering team that is marvelous. We have a head of growth who's marvelous and so I now have the team that actually can go do it within marketing and that for me would be the advice is regardless of what size your company is, you have to have the skill set within marketing. If it's not within marketing, you're going to forever be begging, borrowing, and stealing resources that are perhaps being applied to other parts of the business, and, and rightfully so. So I think right now, what, what I would urge most marketers to think about is how can you staff for, you know, deeper technology capabilities within your own marketing team? Because it, it'll, it'll provide competitive advantage. You know, if you just buy you know, every popular software and try to, try to win with that. That's, that's just not a winning strategy. It's basically, you know, you, you, might get to parity, but you don't build competitive advantage that
1: way. No, I think that, that, that's great advice. And I guess maybe a follow up on that front, something we, we, we began to talk about, right, as you, you pop by the office and I'd love to maybe share with the audience is how to think about, you know, to your point, engineers are precious. And how do you think about making the business case to the company to say, no, marketing needs engineers. And that means maybe they're not building products, but they are doing something else of equal or even greater value. Yeah, it's a really good
2: question. Yes, engineering talent is scarce. For us at Trey, you know, I guess we think about things in terms of what can give us either speed or leverage or both. And to me, it's a business case of, hey, you need X investment. You need to hire X person. What's the outcome? What's the business impact of that decision? And so, I think we're 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 pretty rational actors where we know to grow. You need people, right? And you need people of all skill sets. And marketing is one of these places now where, man, we you know, we have artists on our team, we have engineers on our team, we have content folks, we have technology folks, we have process. It's basically like the UN of departments, right? You got everything. <laughs> so. I think for us, it's just, you know, make the business case, get engineering in there. And if you want to move fast, you, you know, that's a really good strategy.
1: You know, you alluded to this a little bit. I'm not asking you to give away any of your customer secrets. But, you know, when you think about what some of these amazing capabilities for personalization and, and moving data around that, that Trey enables and that this macro shift is sort of uh, signaling, can you share any examples of like just really impressive kind of thought-provoking automation or personalization that's become possible in different parts of the life cycle?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'll hit on a few examples of what we've seen with our customers and internally how we've automated workflows that involve Intercom. It might be cogent for this audience. And so I'd say we probably have somewhere internally, we have at least 20 different workflows that touch Intercom in some way. And there's a couple new ones that our head of growth, Neil's, built. One was really cool. For us, WebChat is a top three engagement vehicle. And there's real benefits for us to run that part more efficiently so you know with intercom we've been able to stitch together a nlp processor so we, we basically built a chat bot using intercom using Trey, and a nlp processor that helps us respond a lot quicker to web chats than if it was just you know our sdr team our sdr teams are on calls and meetings and Unfortunately, like many, many others, our response time wasn't great. And so we're both trying to increase the responsiveness of what we're doing in web chat and add a lot of context. And so that custom chat bot is doing really well for us. And it's really improving both our responsiveness and getting people answers that they need in an automated way. And that's pretty crazy, Like, You know, we're automating the engagement of folks And that's really helping us to scale the business. There's a bunch of other cool workflows. Sometimes you get chat spam and we have a automation that clears that out of everyone's queue. So STRs can remain productive and not have to respond to to kind of garbage chats. We've added a a workflow that identifies known people who chat with us maybe a second time. So we don't have to ask them their email uh, the second time around. And uh, that's flowing through to, some data enrichment vendors. That's a cool one. You could think about each kind of each role within marketing and there's some pretty interesting use cases to talk about. You know, if you are a performance marketer, we've seen some really cool workflows that aggregate all the different performance data from, you know, you name it, Google AdWords, Facebook, LinkedIn, all the all the acquisition channels and brings that into a BI dashboard. So you know, as a head of marketing, I don't ever have to ask anyone like, what did we spend yesterday?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I don't have to worry like, Hey, are we, are we on pace? Like we've automated all of that. And formally before this, I had, man, it's just tedious. You have to log into each tool and say, okay, where are we? Like, you know, where, where's the business? And now I don't worry about that. It's all, you know, brought to me through the benefits of automation. If you think about like, uh, our friend, uh, Dan Amati, who was at outreach, he built mm-hmm. like, 10 amazing workflows that support account-based marketing, that support product marketing. And so like if you're running an ABM strategy, the the common ask is, hey, I want to be alerted, if you're a salesperson, I want to be alerted if if one of my key accounts is on my website. Mm -hmm. And Dan was able to build an automation through Slack, the website, and through Trey that says, hey, anytime key account is on there, it's a Slack alert to the AE, uh, and also if they engage Through intercom, it's another alert, and so that real-time alerting system makes a big difference in in B two B sales. Your ability to get um, connected with the the prospect right where they're interacting at the right time—that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. So that's just you know a little bit of a potpourri of some of the automations we're seeing, but the the list is long, and the level of innovation we're seeing in our customer base is pretty impressive. It's really kind of helping me to be a better marketer mm-hmm. because, you know, not all great ideas start at Trey. We talk a lot with um, you know other innovative marketers and wow, we've really been impressed in what, what we've seen built with automation.
1: Yeah. I guess that's part of what happens when you enable all these citizen, citizen automators, right? Like you've empowered this huge swath of super smart people that historically couldn't action these kinds of ideas and you've enabled them to kind of innovate in all kinds of new ways around the edges that, maybe you would never classically get a CIO to go build for you. It just wasn't viable.
2: Oh, that's absolutely it. And that's, I think, you're touching on something pretty important, that is when you empower the people that know the process and have the expertise of that process and you give them a tool, they can do stuff that no one would think about. Mm-hmm. The other way, as you mentioned, is, you know, you put in a request to someone who isn't a marketer. Like, are they going to really noodle on, like, creatively, like, how could I improve demand gen or how can I improve web optimization, but the but if you give it to the people that are actually tr- really, from a business perspective, trying to solve something or do something new, that's when the creativity really happens. And a good case in point was um, we recently bought a tool called uh, Gong.io, which we're big fans of, and I'm a product marketer by training, right? So one of the things in product marketing that's always been a struggle for me is keeping track of the competitive set. That you're you're interacting with every day. It used to be that you had to like survey reps and you know, sometimes they'd remember, sometimes they wouldn't, the data wasn't very good. But you know, one of our guys built an automation to bring in some of the basically the call transcripts and look for keywords that we think indicate that the buyer is also evaluating a competitor like MuleSoft. And so now I have a quantitative look at who's in our deals, which helps us prioritize competitive intelligence helps us prioritize messaging. I never had that before, right? So the combination of new tools out there and automating what those new tools can bring you has really, you know, made a big difference for us.
1: That's amazing. I, uh... I'm like literally going to go back into this recording and jot down some of these ideas that you shared because I think there's a lot of stuff that we would really benefit
3: from here as well at Intercom. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but... For every single tech company, this is an adapter die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post AI world, new companies will rise. Old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel, and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode.
1: You talked a lot about these, these interesting new use cases. They... It's a lot of automation and personalization kind of supplementing human effort, things like that. I think sometimes people perceive, and, and may indeed be right, that there's a tension there. As we automate more and more, do we offer worse experiences potentially to our audiences? You know, I think we've all made the error of a bad mail merge and, you know, done something foolish. And there's a scale here that's possible, right? Because you're automating at, at this huge volume. Yeah. So I'm curious, how do you think about that? And how do you advise people to... To push the boundary, but maybe manage that risk of being impersonal or, or doing something that that won't work out well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you with any software, it can be misused, and if you don't if you don't run button up processes, it can certainly misfire. And I think we've all seen that. And I think you know, myself included, there, I've had my own misfires on emails, you know, subject lines. That stuff happens. But what I would say is actually automation can actually help you set a process that kind of runs automatically, right? So, you know, it used to be that, you know, in marketing, say email marketing, it's always a mad dash, right? And you know, you kind of have a process in the back of your head, but it's really easy to just skip forward and, and, and miss a step. And if you miss one step in a like a big, say 30,000 batch email, like a lot can go wrong, right? And so what I would say is automation tools can actually help you maintain process that just gets adhered to it actually takes out the human error of you know mistyping something or forgetting a step but you're right i mean you can also design it in a way where like you built in a a misfire into your automation so i i think what it is is really taking more of an engineering approach to test the stuff well before you turn it on and you know there's no silver bullet here it's just it it takes a bit of a a methodical approach and and a kind of a more engineering mindset even if you're a marketer, but it's just, you know, be careful out there. You know,
1: Mm -hmm. you've got a a loaded weapon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this stuff's powerful and the mistakes scale. Right, Um, exactly. I guess, you know, uh, similar in that vein, you know, one thing that popped in my mind, and, you know, fair or not, I think this comes up a lot with automation, is like what's the effect on just people's work? Like, Mm -hmm. for example, probably 20 years ago, that report that you just described about having all your paid pacing all in one place, somebody's job was to click in each of those portals, download the information to excel put it in a nice chart and then send it to you every two weeks oh absolutely uh, yeah. and and now that happens just you know while you and it gives you great peace of mind as a, as a leader but that job that effort has to move somewhere and i'm just curious you know um, i think in some other interviews you've done you've talked a little bit about how mckinsey studies on things like that like do you have a point of view on maybe your own personal point of view on what, how this is going to play out as automation starts to affect marketers and all these roles that maybe in the past it didn't really
2: yeah that is a great question and clearly one that the, the the media is really latched on to. Automation software doesn't automate people out of a job. It automates software, right? Like w- w- the way I think about it is like, we're not automating people, we're automating software. And so we are all using so much software that we're tripping over the software. And so like, I think about automation as like automate away the boring stuff or the things that are tripping us up in our work. And what I would tell you is, you know, we talked to a lot of prospects, a lot of customers, It never actually comes up. Like people don't ever say, oh gosh, is Jim gonna lose his job if I automate this? That actually never comes up because everyone knows that like Jim didn't go to college to be a spreadsheet monkey copying and pasting stuff. That's actually more detrimental to keeping Jim or not, right? I think I I remember, you know, fresh out of school, you know, I was doing some monkey work and I was like, I can't believe I went to college to copy and paste data from point A to point B this is ridiculous I wanted to like I wanted to leave that job so I think you know if you're a VP and you're thinking about how do I empower my team how do I keep them happy like automation is a great tool to keep them happy and stimulated because they're no longer waiting through what I would say very tedious manual stuff you get to automate away the boring stuff and make time for the things that we all really want to be working on and that's strategy executing and like pushing the the role forward so i hear the kind of popular debate i think it's you know it's good for media it grabs attention oh my gosh is automation gonna ruin the economy and i just i have a very different view because i live it every day and i see that people get promoted when they bring in automation we've had many cases where someone you know automates a a few things at a company someone else notices say oh my gosh can can you help me over in my you know customer success team, and then before you know it, they actually become indispensable because they have a capability that is new to companies. And so I view automation
1: as a career enhancer, and certainly that's what we're seeing in our customer base. I guess, you know, I I think for an executive, the appeal of this is obvious and clear almost right away. And I think most of them would process it exactly the way you're describing. But I think you have an advantage as an individual, your engineering background. Yeah, I studied labor union organizing in college. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't come to the table necessarily with the right skill set without some effort to adapt well to this new world of citizen automation and all those things. Yeah. So, you know, if you were going to give some advice to somebody who's maybe mid-career or mm-hmm. early career and that this is not their background, they didn't, they didn't study mechanical engineering, they came up through a different path, Yeah. what could they do to like really embrace this stuff?
2: Yeah, you bring a really good question. You know, we see people of all different kind of technology capabilities, right? And, you know, on one extreme, we'll see, you know, engineers who've been doing integration and automation for a long time. On the other hand, we see people that have never, ever done it before. And what I tell you is that, like, our market is mostly a new buyer market. People who have never, ever done this before. Or maybe they've tried one of the other kind of cheap and cheerful tools out there. What I'd say is it's actually easier than you think it is. Usually my litmus test is like, hey, if you know your way around a spreadsheet, if you have used, like, maybe a VLOOKUP function or some of those functions, and and they're logic functions, essentially... If, if that doesn't scare you, you can do automation. There's ways to, you know, we have automation templates, so you don't even have to know some of the kind of the logic functions. You can just like start building some stuff. And I would say like templates are a way to just learn quickly. You know, you can just disassemble things and see how they.
1: Sort of the technology enabled parts of marketing. And obviously you're ahead of marketing and you have to be thinking across the softer side as well. Um, you know, the storytelling and all those things and, and your background as a product marketer. So. I suppose I I'd love to understand how how do you approach, you know, setting the strategy for your team. It's like you sell this product that enables technical automation, but you also need to kind of inspire people and get them motivated and excited to go and try things. Yeah. Um so how are you, how are you thinking at Trey about bringing that message into the market?
2: Yeah, I think about it from a I guess cultural anthropology perspective where you know, I always I don't start with strategy. I actually start with a ton of recon on our customers and prospects. So when I started trade, I didn't do any marketing for like three months, and everyone's like, "What's this new head of marketing doing over there?" All I was doing was d- trying to deeply understand our buyers, kind of what are their hopes and dreams, what are their pain points, what's their current situation and so all, that's all i did is just i interviewed as many customers as i could to start to build a voice in my head of who these people are what were the common traits that they had what's their manner of speaking even i remember i interviewed people and i said why did you buy Trey? and so one guy says flexibility power and i was like well that's a great mashup you know like so i think you know before you think about strategy start with your customer understand their titles understand what bars they hang hanging out i mean like i'm kind of fanatical about understanding the the people we're trying to serve and and understand that, well, strategy becomes very easy once you do that. For us, it was, you know, after that kind of intensive three month, what I call just market understanding exercise, then it's like, okay, I get it. Like I get how people are looking for a solution. I get whether they are active or latent and basically all, all marketing strategy decisions stem from that. And if I think, if I reflect back to other companies I've been at, to me, it's like this The strategy piece isn't actually the hard piece, right? You can look, if you're in a market where there's other known players, it's super easy to dissect other people's strategies. If you see a hot, like a hot company with large growth, you can pretty much take a day or two and figure out what they're doing. You could look at people's job titles. People reveal a lot on kind of what the strategy of their company is. And so strategy is also, you know, one part customer, one part competitor. One part, you know, product, right, and you just have to marry the three. So there's no like again, there's no like magic recipe for it, but I, I do have like a a strong view on the methodology to get to get there.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a great insight you're sharing there, and so definitely something that I think I know I and many of my peers struggle with sometimes. Is like you see that hot company, and you're like, I want to. You actually don't know how fast they're growing. For all you know, it's all just PR. But <laughs> you 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 assume that they figured out something really smart. And I think you're right. You really can often reverse engineer the blocking and tackling. Like, oh, they've got two ABM people, and they've got this really cool webinar hub, and they're doing something kind of smart. they probably got Trey hooking things up in the background, and it's cool. yeah That's not that hard to figure out, but it, you, it's hard to replicate their level of empathy and insight for their customer. Sure. That is, like, animating all that marketing, and that's causing the market to, like, react to them. Yeah. Um, it's like, the pipes are surprisingly easy to build. Putting something interesting through them yeah. is, like, surprisingly, that's the art and the hard part, I find.
2: Yeah, you're right. You touched on something really important. I think um, you know the pendulum has swung at least here in Silicon Valley, to really focus a lot on the technology and process. And it sounds ironic because, you know, we're, we're very much part of that. But I think a lot of marketers have actually gone too far and they haven't thought about words and creativity and how to engage and how to meet people where they are and find, you know, get out from the noise of what everyone else is saying. And with, you know, with my marketing team, we have a nice mixture of very creative people, people that they naturally gravitate towards, you know, what's the right word to use, what can get people's attention. And we have also the folks that are very good at the, the technology side. So I would love to see the pendulum swing back more towards center where we as marketers really put the customers first and put the humanity first. Right. And, and I think, you know, one thing I learned from some very smart sales leaders through, through my career was like, Hey, listen, you know, we'd like to pretend that uh, our buyer is rational and they run spreadsheets to, to make a decision. But the reality for us is that for all humans, is we, we make decisions based on emotional decision-making and then we rationalize it with, you know, other, you know, proof points. And so I, I always remember that and I think about that a lot where, you know, how do you get at someone emotionally? Like, yes, we could all present a business case or ROI, but that's not, that's actually not the way people make decisions. Like if you buy a car, you know, I might be an engineer about it. I might look at uh, what's the price, what's the gas mileage, you know, how many horsepower. But in the end, I realized that like I buy it because I like it. It just looks hot or it's like the marketing worked on me. I was like, wow, I really wanted that mini. So cool. It's like, I, you know, I, do I actually like really care on the, on the maintenance of the car It's like. I pretend I do, but I, I know I I made that decision because I thought it looked cool.
1: Yeah, I, I agree completely. And it sounds like our all of our old sales colleagues probably would like one another. I, I've heard the anecdote many times. It's like, Brian, 40% of the decisions is just whether they like the rep. Yep. And the rest is whether they like the marketing. They just need to get it through procurement. So I I, <laughs> so I I agree with you. I think that there's a really important insight there for us as marketers is is to to understand and orient ourselves to that. You know, Alex, I guess that's, that's about all the topics I was, I was hoping we cover today. I, w- I just want to say thank you again for, for spending the time with us and for sharing all your knowledge and insight. I, I learned a lot, and, and I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to chat with you about it.
2: Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. Thanks, thanks again for the chance to share my thoughts.
0: We hope you enjoyed our chat with Alex. We'll be back next week with another episode of Inside Intercom, where Brian Donoghue, our Director of Product Management, will be joined by Buster Benson, author of the recently released book, Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement. We hope you'll join us. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please consider leaving us a review. It always helps to spread the word. This is Inside Intercom.